Food is fuel for your body, your mind, and definitely your sport. But let's face it, nutrition is confusing and the expectations on girls and women to be thin and have a six pack are exhausting. If you've ever been frustrated with your body, confused about nutrition, obsessed with eating healthy or guilty when you don't, underate, overate, or overtrained and overwhelmed with all the pressure, then this podcast is for you. Nutrition can be easy. You can take control of it, but it might start with letting go of control by asking for help and making a change. I'm Lindsay Elizabeth Cortez, sports dietitian and owner of Rise Up Nutrition, where I empower female athletes to overcome nutrition concerns and perform at their highest level, to stop being confused by all the mixed or harmful messages, and finally have confidence in your body as a fierce, fit, and fueled female athlete. Hi fans, Lindsay Cortez here, your host of the Female Athlete Nutrition Podcast. And today we have Stephanie Roth Goldberg, licensed clinical social worker, certified eating disorder specialist, and psychotherapist. She specializes in eating disorders and athletes. She is the founder of Intuitive Psychotherapy New York City, a small group of psychotherapy practice focusing on treating eating disorders through an anti-diet lens. Stephanie works with athletes and the intersection of eating disorders and sports. Stephanie, a runner and triathlete herself, is passionate about incorporating movement into eating disorder treatment to help folks feel empowered and connected to their bodies. She regularly presents on the subject of eating disorders and exercise. When Stephanie isn't working, she can be found running around with her two children, writing and triathlon training. Stephanie, I think we are very similar. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, great. <laughs> Besides that, I'm not a psychotherapist, but all of your interests and, and your mission and everything. So I'm so excited to talk to you today and and have you share more with our listeners. Yeah, thank you for having me. I'm excited. Yeah. I first want to just dig into your business because I, I was really drawn to the name of it, which I know the name is not everything. Like the name of my business is Rise Up Nutrition which I think is kind of cool, but not everybody even knows that because it's, you know, unless you're my client, but I really like the name of your business, intuitive psychotherapy. So can you tell me how you like landed on that name and what, what that even means to be intuitive, intuitive psychotherapist? Yeah. If I'm being totally honest, one of the reasons I landed on the name is New York has really strict laws into what can be a name of a psychotherapy practice. You have to include psychotherapy. It can't be called group unless there's more than one owner. It was like all of these, I got this whole list of wow things. Yeah. And so then I was thinking, what do I want to communicate within the confines of what I'm, you know, sort of going to be allowed to use as a name. And I was thinking like people have, there's so much stigma around mental health and there's so much resistance often to getting help. And I was thinking, you know, the way my practice works and and the clinicians that I hire, we try and just meet people where they're at, treat them as they are. I have a pretty diverse group of clinicians as well. And so I was thinking, you know, like if someone came and it was non-threatening and something sort of like when I was thinking of a logo, like a light bulb kept coming into my head, which is not what I used, but this idea that like you have your intuitive self and thoughts of what you need. And sometimes you just need a therapist to kind of help you get there. So there's that part. And then intuitive eating is also now it's quite popular. When I named my business that it wasn't as popular. And at the time, I was one of the only therapists certified in the state of New York as an intuitive eating counselor. So I also wanted to bring that in as well. Mm hmm. You know, I read somewhere on your website, I don't have it written down, but I think you had some sort of quote that was, I'm going to botch it, but somewhere along the lines of like, you already have the answers within you. And, you know, so it makes sense that I I just, I think that makes, it's very empowering that, you know, your therapist is just guiding you to the solutions and answers that you already have somewhere. You just have to unlock it. That kind of sounds like your philosophy. Exactly. Yeah. Yes. And that feels so much better than when we are struggling with mental health to feel like I'm broken or something's wrong with me. It feels so much better. And I believe it's actually the truth that we're not inherently broken. We do have the answers. We do have the power and we just have to figure it out. So 
Yeah. I like your message. So what is, how is a psychotherapist different than a therapist? It's not, it's really a psychotherapist is different than a psychologist in nature of degree. Okay. So a psychologist, PhD, psychotherapist is any master's level clinician that's licensed to provide therapy. Okay. Okay. Interesting. Cause I just never, I feel like most people I know are therapists. And so I just never heard that term before. You know, it's interesting because I'm in the sports world. Whenever I would say to people, I'm a therapist, they would assume I was a physical therapist. True. True. (laughs) Yeah. So I started using the whole title of psychotherapist because I'm not a physical therapist. Mm -hmm. So yeah. Yeah. Different types of therapy. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, I I had a really funny client interaction. It was like, oh, well over a year ago with one of my clients who like referred to me of like, you're a great therapist. I'm like, I'm your dietitian. I'm not your therapist. So um, she was like, well, you're my food therapist. I was like, okay, yes, that makes sense. Um, But yeah. Okay. So you are the psychotherapist working on the mind. Absolutely. So how and I'm sure we can like really dig into your story and background more, but just, you know, where did your interest and, and passion for pursuing a career in this first begin? You know, my mom is one of the, my mom was a helper always. And she was always volunteering when we were growing up and like with the foster care system and a battered women's shelter that we all would volunteer at once a month for as long as I could probably remember. And so I was always sort of interested in how those things ran. And and then I had a therapist when I was young who I really loved and I really enjoyed having that space as a teenager. And then I went and then I went to school for criminal justice for undergrad. And in my internship I was creating all these programs for people coming off parole to get jobs and the head of the program kept coming up to me and going, you know, I think you'd be a better therapist than like you you need to go to grad school to be a therapist. And because he was like, people really like talking to you. And I don't think I was quite as good at the like community outreach that needed to happen, whatever. And so that's sort of how it happened (laughs) that way. Yeah. Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. And then postgraduate, I worked at a practice in Midtown Manhattan and I was one of the only females and I kept getting all of these actresses and dancers. And so I felt as though I needed training in eating disorders specifically, as well as that's in my own history. But it kind of, I feel like where I was in Manhattan, that was common to be like, it was sort of near the theater district. So, so I got specialized training in eating disorders and I have since gone years of that. The sports piece happened also naturally in the way that I was I'm a triathlete. I'm very was very involved in the New York City triathlon community for many, many years. And people would always come to me, physical therapists, doctors that I knew and say, like, do you think this per-? they knew I was an eating disorder specialist? And they would ask, do you think this person like has an eating disorder? Or have you heard of this thing, the female athlete triad? And I would get these referrals from doctors, PTs, all in the area. And so then I was like, oh, I, this is work that I love. I love working with athletes. I love helping people recover from eating disorders without feeling like they have to retire from sport, even if they have to take a pause. And so then I went and got some specialized training in that. Yeah. Yeah, that's great because I think when it does come to eating disorders and disordered eating, like when people are trying to make that first step for help, it's very often it's like, am I going to see a therapist for help or am I going to see a dietitian for help? And ideally it's both and working together, but I very often when people are making that first initial, and so it's really good if your dietitian is cued in to some of the mental and cognitive changes and and to support that. And it's really good if your therapist is has a knowledge and understanding, like you said, of that certification that you got, because there's, there's a huge overlap. And it's also, I think, just bringing light in our conversation. I, I speak of a lot of different sports and athletes, although as a runner myself, I do speak of running a lot. But those performing arts, there's a huge need for nutrition support and reframing how we think about food and body for people in, in dance, in ballet, in acting, getting on stage. So I'm sure that, yeah, you saw a lot of that in New York city. Yeah. I, yeah, there was years where I worked with a dance company actually. And and that is 
it is something that's also quite specialized and needs dietitians who understand the, the needs of dancers and the, also the culture in dance. Yeah, it's, it's a tough culture and, and hours and hours a day of practice, the physical demand on their body, but the culture is very challenging too with, you know, landing with a company, staying with a company, getting certain roles. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, which the running com- the running culture is, although I feel like we're making a turn for the better in that regard. Yeah. Plus runners aren't sort of picked, so to speak, on their body. Yeah. Yeah, that's the challenge with the performing arts, right? Yeah, I'm just thinking... I had a couple dancers a few years ago, but it's actually been a couple years since I've worked with a dancer. So right now, as as far as your clientele go, do you still get a lot? Um, do you work with all sports? What do you see the most of? I do work with all sports, but I think probably because of where my referral sources are, I tend to get a lot of endurance athletes. And probably because some of the dietitians I work with, I also know when we run together or we, you know, used to do triathlon together. And so they also attract those clients themselves. And, but I do, I, I have worked with many soccer players, like I said, dancers, it depends on, I think it depends on the season. And with COVID, I will say, I have not gotten referrals until this, like now that sports are back. Yeah. But I was working with almost primarily runners or triathletes, interestingly, during COVID. I guess, because you could still do it. Because they kept doing it. Right, right. Yeah, absolutely. Interesting. Yeah, so so bring us back. You mentioned that disordered eating is a little bit of your story as well. Can you tell us, you know, what that looked like for you or, or when this was a struggle and how you overcame it? Yeah, I think it looked, you know, there's, and I think this is true of everyone's story. There's generally a few iterations of how disordered eating or eating disorders play out. And oftentimes people think that they're recovered, but really what's typical and what happened with me is they thought I was recovered, but really then they go into a period of pretty extreme orthorexia. And so for me, I thought I had recovered from a pretty restrictive eating disorder And for years, I spent really eating, quote unquote, clean. And I really thought that was great. Like I was eating. And I didn't eat gluten, actually. It's shocking to me now. For over 15 years, a friend of mine was diagnosed with uh, celiac. And I was like, oh, that maybe my stomach always hurts because maybe I have something going on. And I stopped eating gluten and I decided I shouldn't eat it for you know, over a decade. But then when I started getting more competitive in my running, actually, I was continuously injured. I have years of being in an injury cycle. And I finally got to the right doctors, figured out what was going on. I had lost a fair amount of bone density. And a doctor really, you know, had set me up with a specific sports nutritionist. But I think having this team of specialists really made me realize like, oh, all of this clean eating and not eating grains and this and that like is actually still quite disordered. And I'm still not eating enough because I was terrified of white carbohydrates. And so that's how I think it really took a good number of injuries for me to recognize that when I thought what I thought was recovered was still really, really disordered and restrictive. So it's so interesting listening to hear you say this because I, I can draw parallels to myself and my journey too. The difference being that as I was going through it, I, I never even identified as having an eating disorder or therefore, since I didn't identify as having one, I didn't identify as being recovered either. But I have these different iterations, right? Of like being so strict, restrictive calorie counting in high school to then dropping that, but then having some compensation purging issues in in college and then dropping that, but then getting really, I also removed gluten for a couple of years and like didn't touch fast food for a decade type of thing, just like super... I thought I was good. And in hindsight now, I'm like, no, I was still under fueling at that time. So there's these different iterations, which is interesting, even in my own journeys, <laughs> kind of similar to yours. Like, oh my God, I can crush gluten now. I can eat a whole pizza, not have any, <laughs> right. like I didn't really, that wasn't really a problem for me and my body. The problem was I was probably not fully healed and healthy at that time. 
And so it's interesting, you know, how in hindsight, we can reflect and, and, you know, like you were saying, you thought you were recovered, but then there was something else. And even for in my journey, I, yeah, I have these different iterations along it. Yeah. I, you know, and I've been working with eating disorders now for over a decade at this point, And I can, I can think of two cases I've worked with, which is again, a small sample size where there wasn't a story of like, oh, first I was anorexic and then I was bulimic or I was bulimic. And then I, you know, only ate like there's always some version of and, and people do feel better. It's some difference and some freedom from what they felt they were trapped in. But yeah, it's it's not really recovery. But I think that's great to highlight and not to plant uh, a seed in anybody's head to expect that, but just normalize that there are these different phases and stages and to still give yourself credit for the progress you've made and then be motivated to continue working on that progress, right? And like keep seeing new progress that it's not like, it's not that this will be here forever. It's just different, different stages. I think that's how I'm interpreting it. Right. Right. Mm -hmm. So what are some ways that you yourself, just as a therapist working with, with athletes with disordered eating and maybe seeing them in different phases of what's going on and everything, (laughs) like what are, this might be too loaded of a question, but what are some of the ways in which you can actually help them and, you know, tactics or, or techniques that, that you really specialize in and think is crucial to recovery? Yeah, that's, it's kind it's kind of a loaded question, yeah, but sorry. <laughs> that's okay. <laughs> I mean, I think one thing that I will say about myself is that generally when people come to me, whether it's because I talk about being an athlete or again, like the people that refer to me often, are referring to me and they'll say something like, oh, this person is also an athlete. And that will make someone feel, I think, safer coming in because a lot of times people with disordered eating or eating disorders are told to sort of, you know, just stop running and then you wouldn't need so much food or, you know, take a season off of any sport. Not so easy. Right. And so I think there's something, and I think this is true of any therapist with any lived experience of knowing that someone understands an aspect of you that is really important. And while that's not a technique, you know, at all, I think in therapy, first, you have to feel safe with your therapist to do any, have any progress. One of the things I work with people almost immediately is sort of recognizing their own food rules and really having folks like write it down. Because people won't recognize a food rule, for example, might be, oh, yogurt is a breakfast food, not a snack food or something, mm-hmm. right? And people can be might, really subtle like that, you know? Yeah. And, and then there's rigidity there that people might not recognize as rigid. And so that's one of the first things I try and do because it helps us recognize our own mind and how we think about things and where people might be restricting that isn't, again, so obvious. Yeah. This is fun. I do this with my clients too. And I just have to say me myself, it's so fun that I keep doing it with my clients because throughout the years I pick up on these for myself too. And I I like, I will sit here today and say, I do not have any food rules. And then suddenly things like creep up or you're like, whoa, like, yeah, why, why aren't I allowing myself to have yogurt for at dinner time or something, you know? And it's like, so we have those obvious food rules of, you know, don't eat bread or something like that. And it's like, okay, get over it. But then I, I get this one from clients all the time of like, they, they break down their fear of bread. They break down their fear of carbohydrates. They're eating carbs, they're eating bread, but like, it's hard for them to eat a bread in the morning with toast and a sandwich at lunch. Yes. It's yes. Like, isn't that a common one? It's like, you can, yes. a carb is a carb. You can eat bread at breakfast and bread at lunch. And so it's really interesting. These, I always share, Stephanie, I always share with my clients. So I guess I'll share it on the podcast now. Like one of my last food rules that I broke that I didn't even know I had was a couple of years ago, like my husband just questioned me of like, why don't we have mayonnaise in the house? And I was like, <laughs> I don't know. I just never buy it. I just, that was something that like years and years and years ago, I stopped buying mayonnaise and never allowed myself to do it again. And it, it, I didn't have a fear of it. So I could, but I, I hadn't broken it, you know, and I'm proud to say we always have mayonnaise in the house now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, right. I, I would also tell you, I have 
really no food rules, but I do. And my kids are obviously quite older than yours, but not old, but I struggle. And that's where I recognize it now. Like my son would eat Fruit Loops for breakfast every single day if he could. And sometimes we have it, sometimes we don't. But I think it was last week or something. I said to my partner, like, you know, I don't know why I think pancakes with syrup is any better than Fruit Loops. Like truly what there's, you know, like there's a lot of sugar, like who cares? But so even those things that are I don't think of myself as having food rules. I do sort of check myself like cereal is, you know, I don't know, in my head, not shouldn't be eaten every day for breakfast, but that's really not true. Hey fans, I hope you are enjoying this conversation so far and we'll be back to it in just a moment. But first I want to pause and let you know that this episode is brought to you by the female athlete system of transformation aka the fast track to overcome disordered eating and use food as fuel to perform at your highest level. The female athlete system of transformation is my unique program and proven systems to guide female athletes to understanding and implementing the proper nutrition for their sport, life, and health. Myself and my team of registered sports dietitians work one-on-one with clients to address their unique needs and counsel them through the nutritional and behavioral changes needed. Many female athletes who resonate with disordered eating, mental guilt around food and body, relative energy deficiency in sport or female athlete triad, amenorrhea, repeat injuries due to negligent nutrition, or frankly, just a lack of knowledge and understanding on their fueling needs have seen incredible success in the fast track. After years of working as a sports RD, I've compiled the most effective ways for female athletes to learn nutrition, be supported, be challenged, and ultimately find their success with fueling as fast as possible. So don't wait another day. Get to your goals faster by joining the Female Athlete System of Transformation. Look in the show notes or head to the website to book a free call and learn more. Okay, now let's get you back to the conversation. Enjoy. So it's good to always keep, even us as the professionals, to just keep challenging because if, if we can go to that extent and challenging ourselves, you know that we can, we can challenge our clients with that. And yeah, I hope that our listeners think about this of like these beliefs that we have surrounding food and why is it there and where did it come from and does it need to be, you know? Yeah. And then, right. And it's sort of the follow-up to that, that I have people do it. And I, and this is really a, difficult exercise for people is I have them, I I say like, what if to infinity? So you say like, okay, what if you ate whatever, right? Toast for breakfast and a sandwich for lunch. Maybe their fear comes up. And then I say, okay, so what if that happens? And then what if that happens, right? And like you follow it enough that it really begins to break down and not make sense. Or you can recognize what is underneath the fear of like, what might just seem like toast for breakfast and sandwich for lunch is probably some greater and often with my clients, it's a body image issue, but so recognizing it and then sort of recognizing where it's etiology comes from in your mind. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That's why I think having a, a therapist to figure out, yeah, the root of all of this and to keep questioning, keep that conversation going to get to the root and figure out the etiology is so important. Can we talk about that for a minute? I guess, you know, the etiology of disordered eating, it can, I always say it can be for a thousand different reasons or no reason at all. (laughs) But like you said, body image is at the root of a lot of this. What are some other things in your practice that is kind of have popped up in your experience as the root of, of struggles with eating? I mean, at the root of a lot of it is your primary caregivers and particularly for people who grew up in the eighties, grew up in the nineties, or even the early two thousands, right? And now, but there was all your mom or whoever raised you was probably always on a diet. And so we learn to love our body. We learn our internal dialogues from our primary caregivers. So if you have a parent who's constantly thinking that their body isn't good enough, you sort of begin to reflect on, well, I look like that parent or, oh, my body doesn't look like the way that, you know, this person's saying it's supposed to. And so some of that happens really early on and 
in our internal dialogue that we're not even aware of. So that's another big area and having to sort of sort through what one's beliefs are and what they were taught and whose thought is some things. Oftentimes we have thoughts and if we break them down, there's someone else's thought, like our parent, most likely. Yeah. No, that's huge. It's I see it all the time. And it'll be interesting. Dieting has not gone away, but it does morph over time. So it'll be interesting, you know, because right now, like it's 2022, we're seeing the effects of, you know, maybe people whose whose parents, yeah, in the 80s, 90s, 2000s are dieting. So I wonder what kind of the next generation, because right back then it was these very like, just low fat, low calorie dieting and targeted towards weight loss. And those still exist, unfortunately. But we're also seeing this trend right now of, of dieting. It's marketed for sports nutrition. I hate yeah. that. <laughs> right. Yeah. Performance, keto for performance, intermittent fasting for performance. And it's not, those are not for performance. <laughs> those are not what athletes are doing or should do. But it's like, it's, it's like the terminology has changed, but the, the, it's still a diet and it's still diet culture. And I wonder, I just wonder, I don't know. I don't know what this will morph into. But with that being said, you have a very anti-diet approach. Can you tell us a bit more about just how you prioritize like food freedom and, and flexibility within your approach with your clients? Yeah, you know, it's great talking, have, having this conversation with a dietitian because I think it's, I always try and encourage everyone I work with if I don't sort of depending on where they are in their journey to have a dietitian because I think as we were saying before, there's this idea of I can help figure out what's going on, what's, you know, what's the fear around eating food, what happens when you do eat it, but having someone be the guide and give them permission from the scientific standpoint from, you know, where your professional hat as a dietitian is so useful also. But what we know about diets is that they fail. There's a lot of research that shows that diets lead to eating disorders and disordered eating. And I believe I firmly believe that you cannot recover from an eating disorder and be recovered and still have a diet mentality. Well, that's the first step of intuitive eating, which you're certified in is to reject that diet mentality. That's a very first step. Right. And, and I think sometimes you have to kind of work through that as you're working through the other steps of intuitive oh, yeah. eating. Yeah. And it's complicated with athletes because there are there is nutrition that is needed. And so you do, you can't throw everything out the window. But within that, you can allow yourself to eat what you want. You can, you know, I think one of the biggest things with women in particular is when we begin to see hunger as also a desire, that's really important. Like if I want to eat anything, it's sort of, it might be that I'm hungry, but it might also be that I have a taste preference for that and, and a desire. And I don't have to shut it down just because whatever diet culture tells me I need to do. Because I think as women, we are taught so often to like repress a lot of our desires and remain small in all aspects. But I think, yeah, so it, it, in an intuitive eating sort of way, I think the first thing is rejecting all of the diet rules and figuring out, like we were just saying, what those are for someone. And then with athletes also like, and also important for everyone in an anti-diet approach is like, it doesn't matter what anyone else around you is eating. It doesn't matter how often they fuel on a run. That doesn't mean that you should follow that. And so really tuning in and embodying yourself and your needs and tuning into what your body feels like is also, I think, sort of the key to having a successfully anti-diet life. Mm-hmm. That's what it has to be an anti-diet life. I have, I, in, in my programming, I, I must've said to one of my clients, like, I will never go on a diet again. And, and I guess like, cause I said it so strongly because it's the truth, but she was still like, she's still processing that and figuring out like, okay, this is a commitment for my life to go on this path of not like, I have to commit that, that I'm going to go down this path of freedom with my food and not going down, not allowing herself 
to revisit like the what if, because that's what always lingers. Well, just what if I just do this one more diet? What if, you know, what if this is the one that really works? What if this is the one that's as good as everybody's saying it is? Right. Well, and I think, you know, the other thing about anti-diet is you also then have to accept your body and, you know, sort of take the focus off what you look like. Cause they're even in the, what if this is the thing that works, you're still trying to manipulate your body in some way, right? Like, so it also, in addition to starting with rejecting your diet rules, it's also starting with accepting your body. Yeah. Where can people start with that? (laughs) How do people start accepting their body? Yeah. And, and also I should say, you know, as someone in a small body, it's, it's generally easier for someone in a smaller body to begin accepting their body than it is for someone in a larger body. However, I always say one of the first things is like clean out your closet. If you have clothes that don't fit and are not comfortable, donate them, sell them, do whatever, because that's like you're holding on to some hope back to your sort of what if, and also wear clothes that are comfortable so that you're not constantly paying attention to your body. Like if you wear pants that are too tight, you know, you're moving around all day and you're hyper aware of it. Yeah. So even though that might not seem drastic, it's actually a really good exercise for people. It is because that's your every day of putting on clothes. You know, we live in a society where we wear clothes. So like that is an everyday thing. And if you can remove the negativity associated with that process and of, of choosing your clothes for the day and also then wearing it like that is such, it it feels so much better. I literally, I mean, I do this regularly, but I also just did it a few weeks ago. My body has changed post pregnancy and you know, it's a, it's a lifetime of bodies changing. They change all the time. And it's just like, you know what, just clean it out, (laughs) put it in bags, donate to Goodwill, you know, sell on Facebook marketplace. (laughs) And um, you're doing something good for yourself and for others in the process. Yeah. Yeah. I always feel good. Like we have a really active buy nothing, sell nothing Facebook group in my town. Oh, cool. And so I generally post there and I feel like people need stuff. And so I'm so happy that I'm not using this and you can make use of it. Totally. Yeah. And I think the other thing though, it also to begin to work on body image, you do have to work on enjoying your food and enjoying the way you are inhabiting your body. Cause those two go hand in hand too. Like if you're eating food, often diet food doesn't taste good. It's not satisfying, but if you eat something and you get pleasure out of that, you can focus on that instead of the negative body image talk. So you kind of turn the volume up on one thought and turn it down on the other. So you can recognize, oh, in order to meet my needs, I can't really focus on manipulating my body. And focusing on, I think we can talk about all the different roles that food has in your life and food is fuel as an athlete, but food is also a gift you can give yourself and it can be a form of self-care and of self-love. And I think just as you were kind of with body acceptance and enjoying your food, seeing food as a form of self-love and self-care and it's a gift that you can give yourself, I think is something to tap into that can help there too. Yeah, absolutely. And then I think as athletes, in some ways, I think we have a leg up on body image because we can focus on being grateful for what our bodies can do and what we love to do and all of the pleasure we get out of doing that thing because our body allows us to continue that, I think in that way, it's easier to focus on what one's body can do as opposed to what one's body looks like. But that, you know, if you're not in a place where you have exercise or movement that you enjoy, it can be, that's not always so easy. Yeah, totally. So yeah, so digging into like the root cause and etiology again. So we kind of covered you know, body, body image work there needs to be done. We covered kind of our, our beliefs around food and body, maybe based off of where we learned it from other people, our primary caregiver grown up. And I feel like kind of, these are two off the top of my head that I see in my work is that a lot of people, the etiology, maybe if they're eating struggles might be coming from, I guess I'll just say like, just the, 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 especially with our athletes, the the desire to be perfect, be amazing, excel, or kind of drawing that line with exercise addiction, 
And then as, as a second one that I see a lot is just trauma going through some sort of traumatic event, right? Yes. I think trauma is a big one, um, particularly if there is early childhood trauma. You might never learn to trust your body depending on what it is. So if abuse is involved, often you want to disengage from the feelings in your body. And so you do that and you also then shut off feelings of hunger and and that gives you perhaps some control over your body where you may not have had control previously. And it can be especially, especially difficult to inhabit one's body when there has been a traumatic event or a series of traumatic events. It's not a safe space. Yeah, I think this one is, is huge to highlight because, and this is where your work is just so valuable and much needed, is when the root of eating struggles is coming from a traumatic experience. And and I would even, if anybody's listening, like just reflect on your life because trauma, trauma isn't just one thing, right? Like it's whatever's traumatic to you or at that time in your life. So there's very often clients I, I'm working with that like kind of describe an event in their life and kind of brush it off. Like it was no big deal. And I'm, I'm the one sitting over here being like, wait a second. This is, you know, maybe it was when you were seven. And so as a 30-year-old, you're like, ah, oh, I was just a kid. But like, no, this was a thing when you were seven. That meant everything, you know? Right. Yeah. Another exercise I do with people to also sort of understand if there is something like you're saying that's traumatic to them, but they may not recognize as a, a traumatic event if it wasn't, you know, one big event or is sort of, I like to do a timeline of when like a body image timeline, when they became aware of their body, what did that mean? What does that look like? And then what else was going on when you make this timeline at those times? And you could do the same with sort of, it goes hand in hand with your memories of food. What was food like? How was dinner? When did you begin to get to choose what you ate versus what, you know, your parents chose for you? And oftentimes there you can uncover some things that people might not recognize that affected them. I love that question of when did you first become aware of your body? Because this is actually a topic that I've been meaning to do a solo podcast episode on for like over a year and I haven't (laughs) (laughs) because it's a question that I asked myself and I, well, I don't have any plans to do it anytime soon, the (laughs) podcast episode. So I guess I'll just say it right now. Mine is when I was, it was when I was a young gymnast. And I don't know exactly my age, but I was very young. I started gymnastics at six or seven. So I must've been anywhere between seven and 10 when this happened. And I just want to share it. I, my mom brought me to a specialty store to buy a new leotard. And I was so excited that my mom was going to buy me a new, a new Leo, you know, like that's always like, what are you going to wear to practice a new Leo? And, and it was special because I have siblings and I had a lot of hand-me-downs. So it was special to get something new. And I picked out this one that was like red, white, and blue, like splatters. It was really cool. I think it was kind of like fireworks. And the very first day that I wore it to practice, somebody was like, what is it? The 4th of July? And it wasn't. And I like never wore it again after that because I instantly was so self-conscious about, wow, people like judge what I'm wearing. Mm, Right. And I don't know why I still get sad about this story, Stephanie. I still get sad because then I feel like my mom kept asking me like, why aren't you wearing your new Leo? And I like never told her. And then I felt so much guilt that I wasn't wearing this gift, but I also couldn't wear it. And I was so self-conscious. And that that's my first memory of ever being aware of my body and that other people were looking. What I think it's also interesting that you kept it a secret, like you couldn't tell your mom or you didn't want to tell your mom why. I felt guilt because she bought me something and then I didn't wear it. Yeah. Oh my gosh, this is a therapy session because now I just have this other memory. (laughs) This came up another time when my mom bought me shorts, running shorts. Like when I was in college, she bought me running shorts for Christmas and I didn't like how they looked on me and I couldn't get myself to wear them. Oh my goodness. (laughs) I'm having some mental breakthroughs here. (laughs) I mean, but I think this is actually such a good, it's so relevant because this is the other thing that happens, right? Someone made fun of your leotard. You felt really self-conscious about it and it made you sad. And something also triggered your brain to say like, don't tell anyone this story. Just hide the whole story, hide the leotard. And so 
often young kids don't even give themselves the opportunity to work it out and have someone say, you know, well, that's that kid's problem. They don't recognize how awesome, you know, fireworks on your Leo are. And I think that also begins a whole pattern of feeling shamed in your body because you've kept it a secret, which is often where shame comes from. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. I can remember hiding those running shorts in my drawer. And I feel like my mom even asking me, like, why aren't you wearing them? Or just feeling guilt that I wasn't wearing them, but I couldn't get myself to wear them. And yeah, feeling shame there. And then I couldn't get myself to get rid of them either because it was a gift. So I couldn't sell them because they were given to me. And yeah, it's just this whole cycle of, of shame around that. Mm, it's interesting. I need to do a little more thinking on this and probably have a conversation <laughs> with my mom who listens to this podcast anyway. So she's going to hear it. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, but I think that's true. That's what happens when you think about your first memory of your body is it comes also with this understanding of how did you work that out or not work it out, right? So yeah, it's a, it's a great exercise in beginning to think about where these things come from. Yeah, for sure. Do you, for, for you, if, if I can kind of shift and, and turn this yeah. on you now, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, where, where do you think some of your eating struggles like first began and, and why was that? My mom is like queen Weight Watchers. She worked at Weight, you know what it used to be. This might still be true. I have no idea, actually. Like if once you lost a certain amount of weight, you were a lifetime member. And then my mom is this kind of person, though, anything she does, people are always like, oh, come work for us or come, you know, do this. And she worked for Weight Watchers for a long, for, I mean, she, my mom's in her mid seventies and I think she just stopped it maybe two years ago or something. Wow. Yeah. And to this day, even though my sister and I will like really yell at her, she'll go like, Oh, why would you eat that? It's this many points. You know, I'm like, Weight Watchers doesn't even use points anymore. <laughs> but also my sister grew up in a larger body than mine and my brothers always. And she always, there were years where she was served like a different dinner or meal. And so And it's interesting because I didn't recognize this till I was much older. Like a lot of my own body image and disordered eating came in the reflection of that. Like, and I think as a kid, my thoughts probably were, oh gosh, I don't want to look like that. I don't want to have to eat. I can't even think of an example, like jello when I'm allowed to eat yogurt. And so for my story, it's really, it's so embedded. And my grandmother, my mom's mother was the same as my mom. And so it's generations of, of dieters and people who really couldn't accept their bodies. Mm-hmm. Well, Stephanie, I think you, you are changing that for the generation following you with your own children. Obviously, you've changed your own relationship with food and body and help other people do that. So I'm sure your children will be a different story than, than the generations before you. Yes. And my partner and I are the first to sort of we have like big rules when grandparents come over about what you can say at our table and what you can't. So, yeah, that's good. Well, and I think that's actually, that's another great thing, you know, for you as a therapist to work through with your clients is those family dynamics, uh, you know, in just what to say, what not to say, where are your boundaries? And especially just your own personal example too, of like with a sibling with a different body experience and therefore different dieting experience and how that rubbed off on you. I do see this happening a lot with my clients that have like many clients, like their older, older sibling had issues with food and and it's rubbing off on them. And so these are important dynamics to work through with people. Just you're, you know, it's not just you and what you saw on social media affecting your eating. That's a huge piece. Yeah. But it's also, yeah, it's huge, but it's also family dynamics. What's being said in the household at the dinner table? What is, what are your siblings going through? Yeah. And how do you have boundaries? I think first it's sometimes teaching people that boundaries are okay, let alone how to set them and maintain them. Yeah. And I think also family. And then when you're working with folks who, and this is less common now, obviously working in an office, I think office dynamics can be so challenging. Oh, yeah. yeah. So, yeah. (laughs) But it's how do you set these boundaries everywhere? And what are your boundaries? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. 
Well, I could keep talking to you all day, Stephanie. <laughs> <laughs> and we hardly even talked about you and like you're you're running in tri- triathlons, right? Do triathlons? Yeah. 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 You did an Ironman. Yes. Ironmans blow my mind. I don't. I like just can't wait for my kids to be a little older so I can be on my bike for that many hours. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Has when when was your Ironman? Was it prior to kids or prior? It, yeah. it was. Yeah. 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 How old are your kids? Two and four. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I think I'm, you know, my son is only four months old, but still I'm like, enter, I'm literally doing this reflection of like, okay, like, am I, is it going to be 10 years till I race again? <laughs> I will be- say I had so much fun doing so many stroller miles that, and which is a different thing in my, it is, you know, but so you'll get there. Yeah. I actually went on a stroller run today and it was really nice because I've been, just slowly building myself up. And sometimes the stroller runs are not fun because they're hard. And then today, um, yeah, they're hard and they're slower and the baby cries halfway through. (laughs) But today we had a really great one. And I, and I actually like went to a trail to go do it. And, um, I thought to myself, like, this is nice, you know, like sure. Running isn't what it was, you know, two years ago or whatever, but like, this is, I, I'm still grateful for this experience right now. Yeah. And I will say some of my closest mom friends are are my closest run friends. And so those morning runs now often are like, Oh, did so-and-so sleep through the night? And that, you know, it's like so nice how it evolves with you. Yeah, too. for sure. Yeah. 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 Well, I'm looking forward to it. I got to find um, what I have. I have running friends and I have mom friends. I need, the, I need to <laughs> connect <laughs> the two. <laughs> right. 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 Yeah. Yeah. Well, um, do you, once your kids are older, like, do you hope to do Ironmans again or just kind of keeping it open? Whatever. Oh no, I'm itching to do another one. I actually was going to sign up for a 70.3 this summer. Yeah. What I haven't found, I moved during the pandemic and what I haven't found are friends who cycle. And so, uh, yeah. I can't seem to get the mileage in and my partner and I have hired babysitters so we can go on bike rides, but that's not a consistent Mm-mm. thing. Mm-mm. Yeah. So first I think I need some friends who ride bikes and then I think in a few years I'll do another one. I hope to. Yeah. Oh, that's awesome. Well, I'll be, I know we're connected on social media, so I'll be sure to follow along, not only <laughs> yes. with all your amazing psychotherapy advice to clients, but also with your journey as an athlete yourself and, you know, having you being, you know, fueled and strong, hopefully injury free. I know sometimes those injuries from our past can, can linger, but you're, you're in a good place. And yeah. Yeah. I actually am just coming off an injury, which was shocking. It had been eight years, but um, it's been a different experience and a good learning experience because they have the coping skills that it was okay. Hmm. Hmm. Yeah, that could be a whole nother podcast. A whole episode. other podcast. Yes. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Well, Stephanie, I end every uh, recording with the same questions for every guest. So, are you ready for them? Yes. Stephanie, if there's one food you could eat every single day for the rest of your life and never get sick of it, what would it be? Yeah, I was struggling with how I was going to answer this one. It's <laughs> between bagels and chocolate. Can't I don't know that I have an answer. Probably chocolate, I guess, but bagels is a close second. Yep. Oh, I know. I, I could always list like a bunch of foods, but okay, we'll go with chocolate. We'll go with chocolate. <laughs> yeah, chocolate sounds... I mean, and if I think on it, I'm like, do I go a day without chocolate? I'm probably going to be doing that. You right, know? right, right. It, well, those are the two foods I eat also almost every day, so... yeah. You have proof. Yes. Stephanie, what's your favorite sport to participate in? Triathlon or or maybe maybe running at this point because it's the most accessible for me. Yeah. How about as a spectator? This is funny. I was thinking about this one too. <laughs> the Tour de France in my house is like the Super Bowl. We're not huge sports fans. So we do watch, like we love the Tour de France. I do love watching swimming when it's on and, and track. So I was like, oh, I'm so boring. I stay within these confines. But, you know, like I grew up going to baseball games and hockey games and I'm excited to start, you know, my kids are old enough now that we can take them to some of those. So, yeah. Yeah. 
That's fun. Yeah. But the Tour de France is awesome, you know, yeah. and, and something you can really get into. It's kind of like, I mean, it's kind of like the Olympics, like you can get into it for a couple of weeks, you know? Yeah, totally. And it's more frequent than the Olympics. So it, it right. is fun. Yeah. yeah. Awesome. All right. And last question, if there's a female athlete out there that you think is inspiring, a role model, or especially fierce fit and fueled, who would that be and why? Yeah, I was, I was conflicted on this one. So I think Simone Biles, because of how she came out about mental health in the Olympics, is someone I have always thought she's an incredible athlete in person. But I think her and then Molly Seidel, I'm a big fan of. She talks a lot about her mental health and her struggles. And even just in Boston two weeks ago or last week, you know, and I think she's really human. And so I love that. I love when people are just relatable. Yeah. And, and with eating too, yes. you know, she's, yeah. yeah, she's been great, a great role model in speaking out for that too. Yes, exactly. That's why I, I one day really hope she writes a book, but yeah. Yeah. Well, that's beautiful. Well, thank you, Stephanie. And I know you were on Instagram at embodied psychotherapist and your website, intuitive psychotherapy, com. Any other ways that people can reach out, follow you? Or those are your two main outlets? Those are my two main. Yeah. Yeah. Great Instagram account. Um, I've been following. I don't even know how we got to following each other, but I don't either, actually. Yeah. I've been following you for a while now. So it's good stuff. Well, thank you. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks so much. This was really great. Thank you for having me on. It was great. Thank you so much, Stephanie. I really hope you enjoyed that episode and thanks for listening. But before I let you go, I have free resources that you can have access to right away, right now, so that you can start fueling your body as a fierce, fit, and fueled female athlete. First, I have your Red S recovery race. If you've ever wondered if you might be struggling with Red S, curious to learn more, or know you have Red S and are looking to recover fast, then you can head to www.riseupnutritionrun.com slash red S and download the red S recovery race. See how you place and figure out the next steps to recovery. Plus while there, I have a few other great resources for you, including three nutrition secrets that every elite athlete swears by and access to our private Facebook community, female athlete nutrition. So again, to gain access to all of this, head to riseupnutritionrun.com slash red S that's backslash R E D S. And you can gain access and get the help you need fast. Too many girls and women and female athletes struggle with nutrition, but you don't have to any longer become fierce, fit and fueled links in the show notes, and I'll see you next time.